Well, today I am, as usual, privileged to meditate on the Word of God with you. Uh, We're going to be in Psalm 41 today. If you want to go ahead and open up your swords of the Spirit, we're going to be in Psalm 41. You remember the last couple of weeks we uh, took a look at Psalms 1 and 2. These were the introduction to the whole book of the Psalms as well as to book 1 of the Psalms. Remember uh, how the Psalms are divided into five books. And so today we're taking a look at the last book or last Psalm of book 1. And so reading with you Psalm 41. To the choir master, a Psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land, and you do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. And they say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me, and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Glory be to God for his word. Well, let me ask you something. Have you ever pled for the mercy of God? Well, if you put your trust in our Lord Jesus Christ, of course you have, because this is at the basis of our, of our turning to Him. Our, our faith in Him means that we have acknowledged our miserable state of sin, our brokenness because of our sin. And so to trust in Christ is to say, you know, my only hope is that my righteous judge will have mercy on me and that he'll withhold punishment of me, the punishment that I deserve. You remember the words of the tax collector in Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 18, how he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's exactly what we've done. That's what we did when we turned to Christ. But you know, we've also cried out to God for mercy in the thick of our trials. When we're sick, we're wondering how in the world we're going to pay our bills. Our marriage is facing difficulty. Life just seems to be closing in all around us. And so we depend on God's mercy to pull us through our tough times. We want God to end our suffering. And as we're going to see today, that is a healthy and biblical kind of prayer to pray. But God expects something of us too. As we ask him for mercy, he expects us to be merciful too. And that's because one of the primary expressions of the Christian faith is our care for the weak and the oppressed. 
Look what it says in James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Isaiah 1.17 says, Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And then in Jeremiah 22, verse 3, Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And so the Bible is abundantly clear, not only that we should agree in principle that helping the weak is good, but that we do justice and righteousness. You see, of all people, as God's people, we should be the ones leading the way uh, to, by doing good. We should be the ones leading the way by actively seeking justice, correcting oppression, and doing all of this not just from the sidelines, but as active participants. And that means that we, as believers, are supposed to work to relieve the suffering of other people. This means that we are called to be merciful. We're called to be merciful. You know, over the last week or so, we've witnessed a breathtaking display of injustice and unrighteousness, a complete absence of mercy, at the root of which is what Russell Moore of the Southern Baptist Convention calls the Satanism of white supremacy. Man. That puts it really well. That is a very accurate description since racism is pure sin. It's sin because it seeks to do injustice rather than justice. It creates oppression rather than, than corrects it. And so in all of the political spin and rhetoric of the last week, it's easy for us to lose sight of something very important. That this is not a political issue. This is a deeply spiritual matter and a very human problem, namely the continued oppression of our African-American brothers and sisters. That should concern every single one of us, not just the ones who are being oppressed. And that's because mercy is not just a doctrinal idea that we cogitate on. Mercy is about doing God's goodness. It's about caring for people in the same way that we're asking God to care for us. So all to say, our current events provide us with a pretty good backdrop for how to understand Psalm 41. That God delights in people who demonstrate mercy like his, and so he delivers them from trouble. In other words, Psalm 41 sets up an equation. If we show mercy, he'll show mercy to us. And so to understand Psalm 41, we've got to remember where we've been in the Psalms. We'll do a quick review of that and also become familiar with a little bit of background uh, about Book 1. And this will give us the proper context for this particular psalm. In Psalm 1, we saw the stark contrast between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. The righteous way leads to life and salvation, but the wicked way leads straight to judgment and death. Psalm 2 showed us that submitting uh, to God's anointed king, first to David, but supremely to Christ, submitting to God's anointed king is the only wise option we've got because God's king will rule the world. There's no question about it. And he's going to rule every square inch of it. And he's going to rule every single person in creation. 
And so Psalms 1 and 2 are the introduction to the whole book of the Psalms. They're also the prelude to the first book of the Psalms. This is a collection of praise songs that was uh, finalized into five books and back in the days of Nehemiah. Each, of the book, each book of the Psalms has a theme and a structure of its own, and all five of the books work together to proclaim God's ultimate answer to our broken relationship with Him. The Messiah that we saw last week in Psalm 2, the King, the King whom God has set on His holy hill, Zion, the King who's going to rule over all, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so today, we turn to the last psalm of book one, and we're going to see similar themes and how it all ties together. Sin and redemption play a a, a prominent role in book one. In the contrast between the righteous and the wicked and the disdain that the ungodly have for God, we can see the struggle of God's anointed King David, a struggle that foretells the opposition that Christ would face when he walked the earth. But you know, almost half of the psalms in book one, there are 41 psalms in book one, almost half of them are songs of lament. These are the blues songs of ancient Israel. If they had a slide guitar back then, they'd be playing it. King David was God's anointed. He was hounded and picked on and betrayed and in danger of assassination even before he became a king. This was a pattern that plagued his whole 40-year reign. He was constantly in danger. So between a string of wars with pagan nations who wanted to defeat Israel to a rebellion of his own son, King David had a lot of reason to sing the blues, didn't he? Take a look at just a few examples. In Psalm 3, verse 1, he says, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. First verse of Psalm 13 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And then there's his prophetic and mournful cry in the first verse of Psalm 22. This is a phrase we're familiar with. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? But you know what? Through it all, King David trusts the Lord. We can see this as we go back through the Psalms that we just mentioned. The 22nd verse of Psalm 22 says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 13 say, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And then verse 3 of Psalm 3 says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Those are beautiful words. And so the context of David's trust in God is not a sunny day at the beach. David trusts the Lord because God has proven his power over even David's life-threatening problems. But at the same time, God loves David intimately. He's caring and faithful to everybody who bows before him. And so to to borrow from our sermon series title, David acknowledged the infinite glory of God even as he knows his intimate grace. And so that's why David expresses in the closing verses of Psalm 40, which sets the tone for us in Psalm 41, he says this, But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. 
as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh, do not delay, oh my God. And so it's a poor and needy King David who pens the next psalm, Psalm 41. And he depends entirely on the Lord who takes thought for him, who looks on David with mercy and acts accordingly by helping and delivering David. And so as we turn to Psalm 41, here's the big idea. God delights in people who demonstrate mercy like his, so he delivers them from trouble. And the lesson is laid out in three sections. The first section is verses 1 through 3, where we see a sort of tutorial on mercy. And then in verses 4 through 10, we see a prayer for mercy and mercy denied. And then in verses 11 and 12, we see David's gratitude for mercy. And so let's dig in. Let's take a look at the first verse in the tutorial uh, on mercy. Verse 1 of Psalm 41 says, Blessed is the one who considers the poor in the day of trouble. The Lord delivers him. You know, verse 1 begins with the very same word that Psalm 1 began with, blessed. The Hebrew word is in the plural, and so the meaning here is essentially, oh, the blessednesses of the one who considers the poor. In other words, there are manifold blessings to helping the poor. This is a state of joy and satisfaction in knowing that we're right with God, and in this case, we're right with God because we extend mercy to other people, just like God does. Psalm 86.15 says, But you, O Lord, are a, gracious, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now the Hebrew word for poor in verse 1 includes the idea of material poverty as well as other kinds of neediness such as oppression or injustice. And it means anybody who's in miserable circumstances. The New American Standard Bible translates poor as helpless. The NIV translates the word for poor as weak. So blessed is he who considers the weak. Blessed is he who considers the helpless. This goes way beyond just thinking about the poor, thinking about the weak and the helpless. This means that we act on their behalf just as God does. Since God is merciful, he expects us to be merciful. But you know, in my experience, among the many blessednesses of helping people in need is to be able to have a front row seat to see how God is working in their lives, to see the, the light go off and turn on in their eyes uh, that it is God who is helping them with a merciful hand up. But God, but David here is highlighting another kind of happiness, another kind of happiness that comes from being merciful. He says, in the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord delivers who? The Lord delivers the one who is merciful in his own day of trouble. That's quite a blessing, isn't it? It's also the natural result of the righteous way. Just as the natural result of the righteous way in Psalm 1 is life and salvation, the natural result of our being merciful is that God is merciful to us. This is a state of blessedness, if there ever was one. To put it in the negative, to be unmerciful is to oppose God. That's what we saw on the streets of Charlottesville last week. People actively pursuing ungodliness rather than mercy. 
but the Lord delivers a person who considers the poor. The idea is that God enables them to kind of slip away from evil, to persevere through their trial, escape the, the effect of its dangers. I think Corrie Ten Boom was a beautiful example of this. You may remember her story. She was the daughter of a watchmaker in the Netherlands when World War II broke out. And since they were believers, they knew that what was going on with the Nazis was wrong, so she and her family hid Jews, and they, they smuggled them to safety. Eventually, they were caught doing this, and so they were all sent off to concentration camps to be punished for their brave acts of mercy. She and her siblings faced starvation, all kinds of indignities, disease, and persecution. And by the end of the war, Corey was the only one left. All the rest of her family had died at the hands of the Nazis. Now, looking at those circumstances, we might be tempted to think, well, you know what? God didn't, didn't deliver her. I mean, look at everything that happened to her. She was the only one left. Her whole family died. But you know, that's not the way she felt about it. She emerged from the darkness of the Holocaust with a faith and trust in God that was stronger than ever. She had the assurance that each member of her family died knowing the Lord. She knew where they were. And here's how she described her faith even in her darkest moments. She said things like, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And she said, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and you trust the engineer. God was Corey's engineer and he delivered, it from the, delivered her from the ultimate danger of her terrible misery. And that ultimate danger is that she would lose her faith. She didn't lose her faith. In fact, her faith became stronger and she trusted that God wouldn't forsake her. And so he delivered her. All to say that God will deliver us doesn't mean that the world is going to love us for our mercy toward other people or that difficult times won't come. After all, David's troubles are in the context of his trust for God or the context for his trust in God. But you know, there's a principle at work here and one that can be stated in the form of a, of a pretty convicting question. If you don't help people, what right do you have to ask God for help? And that's the ultimate irony, isn't it? To beg for mercy when you've proven yourself to be an unmerciful person. You know, there were Nazis after, the, after World War II who pleaded for mercy. These are the same men and women who tortured and killed a whole lot of people. The point is, is that since God wants us to be imitators of him, just as Paul declares in Ephesians 5, we should be merciful just like God is. In fact, to be an unmerciful follower of Christ is an absolute oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? It's unnatural for a believer not to show mercy. But when we're merciful like God is, we see more blessednesses. And that's exactly what verses 2 and 3 are about. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He's called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. And in his illness, you restore him to full health. And so God does four things for the one who is merciful. First, he protects him and sustains his life. Evil doesn't overwhelm the believer who extends grace. 
<coughs> evil didn't overwhelm Corey Ten Boom. She not only kept her faith, but she came out stronger. Second, he is called blessed in the land. You know, people are going to recognize the joy of a believer because of God's care for him. Her fellow prisoners certainly recognized Corey's joy, and in fact, after the war, even one of her former prison guards became a believer, in part because of her steadfast and joyful testimony about the care of God. The guard could see that God cared for her. And third, God won't give the merciful person up to the will of his enemies. You know, every single enemy is out to destroy, to defeat, to overcome us. But God doesn't allow that to happen to a merciful believer. Corey's enemies did all they could to destroy her. They wanted her to believe that they were more powerful than God. But instead of being defeated, Corey was the winner because God protected her. He protected her faith. And then finally, God sustains the merciful person through sickness and makes him well. God doesn't just preserve. We get the idea from the wording in the Hebrew that God changes things. In this case, he not only heals, but he transforms the place of suffering into a place of healing. You know, the fact that Corey's family all died at the hands of the Nazis is proof that this isn't a, an absolute promise that God's going to heal us of all of our physical infirmities. But... God will transform the place of our suffering into a place of healing, and here's how it works. This is exactly what happened to Corey and her sister as they saw, sat there in the squalid and disease-infested conditions of the Nazi concentration camp. The Holy Spirit had done an amazing thing. Bibles were illegal. You could get in a lot of trouble if you had one in the concentration camp. But the Holy Spirit made it work out that they were able to hold on to their Bibles so they could share the gospel with their fellow prisoners. And you know what? Many of them came to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They came to saving faith. Some of them only hours or days before they died. So God transformed a place of disease and death and suffering into a place of healing and life as they sat there and had Bible studies in the middle of it all. Well, that's our tutorial on mercy. God delivers those who are merciful. And next we see a prayer for mercy and mercy denied in verses 4 through 10. This is a, a, a section of both, uh, that, that has both a, a prayer for healing and deliverance and a testimony of deliverance. The closing verses of the previous psalm have already helped us to understand that David needs God's mercy. The tutorial on mercy that we've just looked at uh, explains that God is merciful to those who are merciful and establishes the principle that those who ask for mercy should be merciful too. And so David's prayer in verse 4 stakes his own claim that he's one of those people, that he is a merciful person and therefore, he is confident of the Lord's deliverance. Verse 4 says, As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. Now here you're going to notice something maybe that has already been bugging you. I've been talking about being merciful. But David here is talking about being gracious. Those are two different things, aren't they? 
Well, yes and maybe no. But the reason for this is that there's a great deal of overlap in their meaning. The bottom line is that you really can't have one without the other. We don't deserve either grace or mercy. The most common way to distinguish grace and mercy is like this. Grace is the goodness of God shown to people who don't deserve it. Mercy is the goodness of God shown to people who are in a miserable plight. You can see how these things overlap. But the way to understand the distinction is that grace has to do directly with a person's sin, while mercy has to do with a person's situation. John Piper says the difference is whether the act of goodness is viewed in relation to our sin or in relation to our misery. And so God's one act of saving us is both an act of grace and an act of mercy. From God's perspective, he sees all of the evidence before him that we do not deserve salvation, but by his grace he acquits us anyway. He acquits us of our sin. It's also an act of mercy. Since we were dead in our sin, God in his compassion saw our suffering and he removed our suffering and our brokenness and even the punishment that we deserve. And so it is fair to say that acts of mercy are gracious and it's also fair to say that grace is merciful. So that's why the word in the Hebrew for gracious in verse 4, which is chanan in the Hebrew, and it means to show favor, that's why it is also translated, this same word is also translated as mercy or merciful in other places in the Bible, elsewhere in the Psalms. And in fact, even in this verse, the NIV translate, translate the word that we see as gracious in our ESV Bibles, they translate it as have mercy on me. And so there's a lot of overlap here. But all to say what David is asking for is God's merciful intervention to relieve his suffering. This is why I think merciful is a better reading of verse 4 because it speaks to the context here a whole lot better. David has been sick, he's been suffering, and he's also been suffering in his sin because he confesses sin. And so David is reporting on a prayer that's already been answered As for me, I said. He is speaking in the past tense. He is needing healing in his body and also in his soul because of some unstated transgression against God. And of course, he didn't deserve to be healed in either sense. And so he is appealing to God's mercy. And he's appealing to God on the grounds that we've already talked about, that he is worthy to ask because he is a man of mercy himself. Now, with all that said, have you ever been kicked while you're down? Have you ever experienced that? This is exactly what's happening to David here. Verses 5 through 9 spell out the opposite of mercy. This is a terrible level of cruelty on the part of his enemies and even a so-called friend. They deny David the mercy that he's looking for. His enemies come to his bedside and are fully aware of David's physical illness and also of his sin. But instead of offering comfort and help and encouragement, they see this as their opportunity to get at him while he's weak, while he's poor and needy. You know how a lion always picks the weakest of the herd because it's easiest to kill. Well, bullies do the same thing. They don't want to be in a fight that they can lose. They want to be in a fight they can win. And this is what David's enemies are doing. They're acting just like an animal of prey. And so in verse 5, they hope not just for David's death, 
but that his name would perish. And this means they want no trace of David left. They don't want anybody to even know he ever existed. No children, no memory of him. And this goes far beyond any sort of discipline for David's sin. They want David to be just annihilated. And so in verse 6, David describes the empty words of those who come to see him. You see, they're pretending. They're saying flattering things, but they don't mean them. They're giving the false impression that they're on his side. I've experienced that a few times in my life, and it's a terribly painful experience. People pretending to be your friend. They flattered me to my face, and later on I found out they just really hated my guts. In reality, they were just taunting me. And you know, when it's a group of people, it's an even worse kind of experience. It's a horrible experience. And this is exactly what's happening to David. Not only is one of his visitors falsely flattering, but when he goes out, the verse says, he tells it abroad. When the enemy leaves David's sickbed to go talk to other people, he says what's really on his mind. And he spreads slander and misinformation about David to try to speed along his downfall. I don't think there's anything more painful than that, do you? I mean, when people, they conjure up all kinds of strange notions about your motives and they even just lie outright about you. It's a terrible thing. But they do it because they want to see you go down. And this is exactly the sort of thing that I watched a whole lot when I worked in the secular world. It was even difficult sometimes not to yield to the temptation to be a part of it. But you know all the gossip, the talk about so-and-so's motives, oh, this boss is terrible, and here's why, and he should be fired, and all that kind of thing. And so in the whispering of verse 7, this refers to the kinds of rumors and stories and plots that discredit a person that you hear about around the water cooler, or even worse yet, in some secret meeting somewhere, to plot that person's demise. This is what David's enemies are doing. They're just trying to tear his character to pieces, and they're plotting for his downfall. And what they say is recorded in verse 8. They say, well, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. They want everybody to think that David is on his deathbed, that it is his time to go, and good riddance. Good riddance. You can start making your plans now for life after David. That's the attitude of David's close friend in verse 9. The friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This is David's most painful experience, a friend who betrays him. And in fact, these are the words that Christ used to describe Judas in John 13, 18. I am not speaking to all of you, Jesus said to his disciples. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's a direct quote of Psalm 41. One of, greatest, one of David's greatest hardships was when his own son Absalom rebelled against him. We don't know if this is the particular occasion that David is speaking of, but Christ used this verse to describe the greatest betrayal of all. It's not a prophecy about Judas, and neither is this psalm itself, but Jesus applied these words to show the evil in Judas's heart. And then finally in verse 10, David wraps up his prayer. 
David knows that unlike his enemies, God will grant him mercy. This is good news. Verse 10 says, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. That's kind of startling, isn't it? David wants to repay his enemies. We all know that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But David wants to repay his tormentors in that he wants everybody to know about their weakness. David desires mercy from God so that his recovery from his illness and his restored relationship with God will allow him to reveal the truth. He wants to set the record straight. He wants to be able to repay their treachery with the gospel truth. You know, our temptation when somebody slandered us or somebody who's worked really hard to make us fail or fall, our temptation is to want to repay them in a similar way. We want to be mean just like they were, right? We want to show them how it feels. But you know, just like our moms taught us, two wrongs don't make a right, do they? And so David's desire is that his enemies will be put in their place, not by stooping to their level, but by rising to God's level. He wants the truth to be known so that their treachery and lies will be revealed to everyone. He's going to repay them with God's truth. And you know, this is exactly why you've seen me and so many other pastors come out so strongly against racism this week. White supremacy is a lie straight from the pit of hell. And it slanders our fellow image bearers of God. And so we've got to speak up to repay that horrible injustice in no uncertain terms. With gentleness and respect, yes, but in no uncertain terms. We reply with the truth of God's word and we stand firm and even fiercely in that truth no matter what. And you know, when God gives us the opportunity to do that, It's something that we should be abundantly thankful for. When we're allowed to represent God like that, we should be full of thanksgiving. And this is exactly what we see in the third and final section where we see David's gratitude for mercy in verses 11 and 12. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. So David here is reporting that his prayer for mercy has been answered. By this I know. Now he's speaking in the present tense, no longer the past tense. And the fact that God has healed and restored David tells David that God is pleased with him. He also knows that God is pleased with him because his enemies will not shout in triumph over me. He stands before God's people to declare God's victory, a victory that's, manifest, that's a manifestation of God's pleasure of David. And so we can get a picture of this if we think about the, the scene uh, right after the last Out of the World series. One team just swarms the field in triumph. But the other side, they're all hanging their heads low in the dugout, and some of them just go away. They just are dejected. But brothers and sisters, this is no game that we're talking about. This has been a deadly matter that David's been dealing with. People have wanted to kill him, but they failed. And instead of swarming the field in victory, they're drooping their heads, and they listen to God's people raise their shouts of praise to God. 
And this is a victory that proves that God is pleased with David. And David is thankful because God has upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. In claiming integrity, David isn't claiming to be sinless. Because remember, he did, after all, confess sin in, back in verse 4. That confession is actually why God is pleased with him. You see, David didn't sin and then pretend that he didn't. He didn't pretend that he was perfect. He behaved as a man of integrity and admitted his guilt. And he also confessed his desire to be restored to God on God's terms. This is his integrity. And so to borrow from Psalm 1, David delights in God's law and he wants to live accordingly. And that pleases God. This is why God delights in David. And so God has set him in his presence forever. You remember how Psalm 1 described the wicked. In verse 5, in Psalm 1, it said, They will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. God is right to judge the wicked man. He's right not to allow him uh, to be a member of his congregation because he opposes God. The ungodly person has no future with God, and at the end of his road is surely judgment. But here in verse 12 of Psalm 41, David, the righteous man, will stand in the presence of God forever. God is right to allow David to be a permanent member of his congregation because he delights in God's law. And so in verse 11, we see that God returns the favor by delighting in David. And this is the blessing of being right with God, is that God delights in us. There's no greater blessing than that. And so as we consider what to take home with us today, here's what we've contemplated. The big idea of Psalm 41 is this. God delights in people who demonstrate mercy like his, so he delivers them from trouble. This lesson was laid out in three sections. The tutorial on mercy. We're challenged with a question. If you don't help people, what right do you have to ask God for help? But when we are merciful, God delivers us from our own times of evil and trouble. And then we saw the prayer for mercy and mercy denied. We heard David's prayer for mercy in the torment of his enemies who denied mercy. They took advantage of him while he was down. They are the epitome of cruelty. But David knew that God would grant him mercy because God is merciful. And then we saw his gratitude in verses 11 and 12. David is thankful that God has healed him. He's healed him so he can rise up to repay treachery with the truth. His enemies are the losers, not David. His, his own confession of sin is the basis of his integrity, and it pleases God. And this means he's going to spend eternity with God. And so we can circle back to where we started today. Circle back to the middle of all the turmoil and the misery of this week's news. And we can hear verse 1, perhaps, in a new light. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Blessed is the one who considers the weak. Blessed is the one who considers the helpless. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The blessing of doing mercy is that God is merciful to us in our difficult days. 
Peter read Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount of just a little while ago. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus isn't saying that we earn or deserve mercy, but he is saying that as believers who call upon God to heal us, who call upon God to protect us from our enemies, as people who call upon God to sustain us in times of evil, that is, as people who call upon the mercy of God, God expects us to be living demonstrations of mercy. And when we are, He blesses us with mercy. Mercy is about caring for the people, for for other people in the same way that we're asking God to care for us. Mercy isn't about doing and saying the kinds of things that David's enemies did. Mercy isn't about what we saw in Charlottesville. Mercy is about doing things that restore. Mercy is about being generous and forgiving others, having compassion for the suffering, and providing healing of all kinds in all sorts of different ways. Merciful people don't just think about what's right. They do it. They seek justice. They correct oppression. And they do what is good. Mercy is a verb in a very real sense. And mercy, you know what? It can be as simple as is the things we're doing here at WBF. It can be as simple as worshiping and fellowshipping with our African-American brothers and sisters down at Eva Walker Park in September. That's a visible testimony to the truth of God that we are all made in His image. That's the way that we can proclaim this out loud in a visible way. And it's a way of saying to the world that by God's power and by his truth, we're not going to allow the treachery of the world to shout triumphantly. It can also mean that we take care of the sick. It means we can go down to the family shelter and serve food or become a tutor to the children down there. It can mean that we buy body wash for the elderly down at the nursing home. It can mean that we're gentle and respectful on Facebook, even with people we disagree with. It can even mean that we're more patient and understanding with our children. It can mean that we're more understanding and patient with our husbands and with our wives. In other words, mercy comes in all shapes and sizes, doesn't it? But it always rises up from our relationship with God, a relationship that was bought and paid for by the merciful act of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can celebrate as we read the last verse of Psalm 41. This is a simple but beautiful benediction, not only to this psalm, but to the entire first book of the Psalter. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. And amen. Let's pray.